Good morning to you. What is the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer? Well, a bad lawyer makes your case drag on for years, and a good lawyer can make it last even longer. What do you call a lawyer with an IQ of 100? Your Honor. What do you call a lawyer with an IQ of 50? Senator. What do you call a smiling, courteous person at the annual legal bar association convention? That smiling, courteous person is the caterer. That's right. How many lawyer jokes are there? There's only three. I'm told the rest are true stories. So, um, all right. So now there are many fine Christian lawyers, and our society absolutely needs competent legal counsel. So if those jokes bent you out of shape, you know, take a joke. Perhaps there are so many lawyer jokes because the profession is generally needed when things get heated. Folks start to stew when others say, I'll sue. But what about disputes among believers? Are lawyers the answer? Or are we courting disaster? That is the question we are to consider in our time together today, for we are in the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 6. And in our slow journey through the epistle to the Corinthians, this was the issue they were facing. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is on page 1213 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. So if you grab that Pew Bible, uh, page 1213, you'll find 1 Corinthians 6. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in His text today. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us on a subject that uh, many of us may not be well versed in, that uh, Corinthians is sometimes an enigma, uh, and this particular passage is the kind of thing that people refer to only in the heat of the moment, when white-hot emotion can blind a patient, careful, biblical understanding of the whole counsel of God. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us today while things are good and we are uh, behaving and believing and walking in truth, that we would be armed with the truth, that we would know the truth. And when the time should ever come or another brother along the way in another setting has a question, that we would have an answer ready from Jesus and not from the flesh, the world, or the enemy. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, just this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saint? Or do you not know the saints will judge the world and that the world will be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more then matters pertaining to this life? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
But brother goes to law, that is to the courts, against another brother, and this before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and even your brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, sadly, the self-centered, sin-ravaged congregation at Corinth, saints were suing one another. And it was becoming quite commonplace, it would seem. And yet, the Apostle Paul is utterly incredulous at this. And in the Greek, this is loud and clear. When you read this sentence in the original Greek, the syntax is so clear. Because in Koine Greek, you can put a word in any order in a sentence, and you throw it in new positions uh, for emphasis. And so, to show the deep emphasis in the Greek, the first word in this sentence is thrown out of position, and it's, dare he... He can't believe this would be happening. Paul views these lawsuits as an act of audacious defiance. And so the scripture's position is pretty clear. Believers are not to sue other believers. But before we get deeply into this, we need to say what the passage isn't saying. Because it isn't saying a number of things, and you can't uh, do justice to the text and misunderstand that. The first thing this passage isn't saying is this is not referring to criminal prosecution. In, in Romans 13, the Bible explains that's what government's for. And so if you've had a crime committed against you, uh, the Christian is absolutely uh, capable and encouraged, if you've been criminally victimized, uh, to prosecute. You're not prohibited from seeking the protection of the authorities God has given but this isn't a passage about criminal prosecution. This is a passage about civil litigation. Verse 1 indicates it's about disputes, disputes, not crimes, between one and another. Uh, disputes, according to verse 7, where one Christian feels wronged or cheated by another brother. And so it's only civil suits that the Bible is forbidding. The Bible is not forbidding all civil suits in this passage. Verse 5 tells us he's only speaking about civil suits between believers. And so that means that this passage doesn't pertain to civil suits with unbelievers. The Bible does not forbid that. Now, sometimes in our fallen world, we're going to deal with lost folks, and uh, we may need to resort to the courts but this not ought to occur among the brothers. That's the idea in this text. This also isn't a passage about being sued. Uh, rather, it's a prohibition against a believer choosing to pursue civil litigation against fellow Christians. The Bible's answer to that is don't do it. However, if another brother sues you, this isn't a prohibition against getting legal counsel and competent defense. What this passage is saying, very clearly, is you ought not be the person who initiates civil cases, legal action, against another Christian. That is the Bible's really clear position in 1 Corinthians 6. This was a total countercultural shock to the Corinthian church. 
Uh, they were a highly litigious, litigious culture. You see, the Greeks were known with their fascination with litigation. There's a playwright in the Greek world. His name is Aristophanes. And one of his characters in one of his plays uh, goes to a map and says, where is Greece located on the map? And, and someone points it out to him in the play. And he looks at the map and he says, no, 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 that can't be Greece. There must be a mistake. I don't see any lawsuits happening. That's how much it penetrated their society. Let me tell you, modern America looks a little bit like ancient Greece in this particular area. In the year 2016, in just the state of California, 150th of all the states, there were over 700,000 civil cases filed in just that year, in just that state, in our world today. And so much like modern American society, the Greco-Roman world was a highly litigious society. Each Greek city had its courts and its councils and its labyrinth that you walk through. Uh, civil magistrates would sit at, this is important for why this passage is forbidding what's happening, they would sit at public judgment seats called the Bema. And the Bema were prominently located in the very city center, in the very marketplace, in the very public spot in front of everyone. And so it meant that if you took someone to court, you took all your dirty laundry in front of everybody, very publicly. So by carrying their internal conflict off to the pagan courts, the Corinthians were making a mockery out of Christianity because they were feuding in public. Their inability to settle personal squabbles illustrated the sharp divisions within the Corinthian congregation, and it really illustrated this pervasive me-first uh, spirit that is incongruous with the selfless love of Jesus. I, I don't know that you can get more different, right? So here are these Christians, and they're at each other's throats on Monday, but Sunday they just sang about amazing grace together. So let's just review. When wronged by another brother, you really only have three options. The first option is go to court, prosecution. Or you could go to the church seeking mediation. There's a third option presented in the passage. It's actually the one that it promotes. Go to Christ and accept deprivation the one the passage encourages us to consider. Of those three options, go to court, go to the congregation, go to Jesus, one of those options is utterly forbidden for the Christian. We are not to sue another brother in a civil situation. One is permitted, but it's not promoted, seeking mediation with the goal of reconciliation, not retribution. Because many people use this passage in Matthew 18 to weaponize it, to try to get retribution to get their way. And one option is actually actively promoted by the Holy Spirit, and it's the one that unholy people, when sinned against, don't like. It's permitting ourselves to be wronged and turning it over to Jesus, trusting that he can make it right. Now, Scripture's going to break down God's reasoning in this passage this way. In the first three verses, in verses 1, 2, and 3, God's word is going to remind us of the destiny before us. That, that saints will one day judge the world and angels, so could we not handle petty temporal squabbles now? 
And then in verses 4 and 5, God's word reminds us not to overlook the resources already among us as a church, that, that even a saint of rather little account who understands grace and truth is better than going to a pagan who, who has an eye for merciless legalities and, and a gaggle of lawyers who look for, for loopholes and trivialities. That there's a better resource than the courts. And then in verses 4 and 5, God's word reminds us not to overlook um, uh, the, uh, excuse me, verses 7 and 8, God's word reminds us not to overlook the teachings of our Lord Jesus in all this. Uh, in verses 7 and 8, as we think about the teachings of Jesus, we're taken back to turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and, and reviling without being, or, or being reviled without reviling in turn. And then in verses 9 through 11, God's word reminds us that you know, we all once lived in the grime all the time. But now we've been washed. We've been set apart for righteousness. We've been sanctified for righteousness, not spitefulness. We, we've been justified because Jesus was crucified. So why would we want to injure another brother for whom Jesus died to rescue? And, and in the middle of this is verse 6. Verse 6 is an important verse. You might want to start in your Bible, highlight it in your notes. If you're following along in your, uh, in your uh, bulletin, uh, we've got eight points today. But, but verse 6 is an important, important verse as you look at this passage. Verse 6 is the verse that's often lost when we are cross. It, it, it's, it's critical, but it's often missing. It's often lost because we would genuinely like to be seen as right in everyone's eyes rather than be righteous in Christ's eyes. That's usually the case when we're aggrieved. We like to be seen as right in the court of public opinion instead of in righteous in the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6 says, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Friends, when we take family matters to foreigners, the cause of Christ is set back because the name of Christ is drugged through the mud. Does that make sense? The church at Corinth was rapidly losing its testimony in their city. Not only was the wider community knowing about the gross immorality that was in the assembly, we talked about that a few weeks ago, but, but they were also aware of these lawsuits among the believers that constantly were being aired in the public arena. Instead of having a reputation uh, befitting the Lord Jesus, one of love and, and truth and grace, the Corinthian church had become an unloving disgrace where truth was a weapon used to make your agenda happen. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? What was true in the first century in Corinth is true in the 21st century in New Jersey. And what is true in America is even true in Australia. Dr. Paul Barnett is the Anglican Bishop of North Sydney and he, he writes uh, commentaries and he wrote in his commentary on Corinthians about this passage, quote, the media love to sensationalize scandal and quarreling within the church. If a pastor has committed a serious moral offense, or a bishop has sacked a vicar, or two church factions are in court squabbling over property, we can be confident this will attract more media attention than would otherwise be the case in any other court case. You see, Satan knows that when we're in the throes of our wounded pride, we want to be seen as right. Very 
important to those wounded in their pride. He knows that we suffer a special kind of spiritual blindness when we believe we've been wronged. In those vulnerable moments, we can easily forget, hey, there are bigger issues at stake than our right and wrong. And so the cause of Christ gets sullied because we want our cause lobbied. And so in these 11 verses, there are eight basic principles that we need to digest, or our witness we will divest, and our brother we will transgress. So would you join me and join in your bulletin on the eight points, the eight principles from 1 Corinthians 6. The first principle is this, very simple, disputes among the saints will occur. Let's say that one together for a second. Disputes among the saints will occur. Now look at that other person that you think doesn't know that. No, don't. Uh, disputes among the saints will occur. I want you to notice what verse 1 says. Now, when one of you has a grievance against another brother, he doesn't say if, he says when. The Bible presumes there will be grievances among one another in the church. Verse 5, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? The Bible assumes that disputes will occur among believers. Here's the thing, many times Christians are shocked that Christians sin against one another. Can you believe that happened? God is not shocked. God wrote a bunch of stuff about it because God knows that while every believer who's put their faith in Jesus Christ has been utterly forgiven, and we are now positionally saints, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus, all that I was, I'm gone, and all that God is is in me, and, and it's a different situation. We are positionally saints. Do you know what? This side of heaven, we are still highly capable sinners. The Bible doesn't forget that. We do. Now, do you know what forgiven sinners sometimes do? They sin. Yeah. And do you know what sinners do when sinned against? We tend to respond sinfully. Sinners, when sinned against, tend to respond sinfully. We see that from the first sin until sin is eradicated at the end of Revelation. So I don't want you to be shocked when sometimes a saint acts or reacts like an ain't. You do too don't you? Interestingly, in our moments of weakness, we're quick to want mercy for ourselves when we fail, but we tend to want justice for others when they fail, especially against us, which is why God's Word gives us Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32, I think we have a slide for that one. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now right away the flesh says, how can I forgive him? How can I forgive that? Well, in our fallenness, you probably can't. But through Jesus, that's a different story, isn't it? Consider Colossians 3.13, that we are to be bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now, I want to stop for a second, because there is a certain kind of saint that takes this passage and weaponizes it and go, I'm just going to be a terrible person to everyone, and then I'm going to make you forgive me. I'm going to continue abusing you, and whenever you call me on it, when you get brave enough to go, hey, I don't think you're supposed to hit me with a bat as a Christian. I don't think that's cool. I've been thinking about that. I've been praying about that. I've been in the emergency room about that. I think that maybe that's not cool. And they go, well, you need to forgive me. And while you say, okay, I for you can't get the word out because the next bat is coming. You know that Christian? The Christian who uses the forgive me card as a sort of way of getting out of their consequences of their action. I want you to understand that forgiving is not the same as forgetting. I mean, God moves our sin as far as the east is from the west, but temporally in this world, there are still consequences. If someone's actions are repeatedly reckless, we can forgive them. We absolutely can forgive them for their repeated recklessness, but I don't advise you to give, you, give that person who's reckless the keys to the family car and to have your infant be on board. Because there's wisdom and there's forgiveness. Forgiveness forgives. Wisdom says, this might be dangerous to keep empowering you with the bat. Let's take the bat out of your hand. Forgiveness does not mean there's no consequences. We can forgive a sister who gossips about us but we're probably wise not to invite that sister into deep levels of personal information going forward, right? Uh, we can forgive a brother who's defrauded us. You probably don't want to give him power of attorney over your business, though. Forgiveness can always be given freely because it's been given freely to us, but there's also the wisdom of Proverbs 3. You have to have the whole counsel of God. In Proverbs 3, in verse 21, the wisest man who ever lived said, My son, do not lose sight of these keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck they will help you walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble forgiveness is always available through christ but christ told us that we're not only to be gentle as doves but also to be shrewd as serpents there's both of those in being a christian and so while we always must treat others gently, we must also remember that some folks have fangs. And if you forget that some folks have fangs, the best way to know if somebody has fangs is if they've fanged you before. Uh, if you forget that some folks have fangs, you will have more envenomed encounters than you need to if you were wise. So we need to handle some people with care because the fangs are there. Forgiveness is always available, and yet Galatians 6-7 is still true, my friends. Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked, for whatever you sow is what you... So there are people that sow a lot of venom and a lot of mischief and a lot of swinging a bat with their tongue or with other things, and, and, and you know what? They're going to reap some of that, and we have to then be careful in re realizing how do we walk through that circumspectly. So practically... If a person is lazy, you employ them at your peril. If a person is violent, you know it's not wise to hand them something delicate. If you have a priceless Fabergé egg that you keep inside of a priceless vase and Mongo the Destroyer is coming over, maybe don't hand that to Mongo the Destroyer. Give him a Dixie cup and <laughs> a bib, okay? Friends, that's not unloving. And that's not unbiblical. It's wise, given the realities of the individual 
to which you know. So now, if disputes are going to arise, here's something that we cannot compromise, and it's point two, and it's the, uh, the essence of 1 Corinthians 6, and it's simply this. Litigation is not the solution among Christians. Litigation is not the solution among Christians. Verse, six, or verse 1, uh, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And the answer to this rhetorical question is supposed to be a resounding no. You shouldn't dare to do this. And yet they were doing this all the time. You see, the world says go to court. The Lord says go to the church, or better yet, go to Jesus. The Bible is teaching reject prosecution, consider mediation, better yet, submit to deprivation. And that brings us to principle three. Resolution that leads to reconciliation is the goal. The goal is not to be proven right. The goal is not to get your way. If, indeed, the Lord has you pursue an attempt at mediation, it's to lead to reconciliation, not to be proven right, and not to get your way. Look at verse 5 again. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle? The idea is it settles the dispute. It isn't that you meet with this person and they have another hundred things to be upset about. The idea is you're both coming to fix this, not to have new ammo to fight with. The goal is to settle the dispute, not to win the argument. 1 Corinthians 6 sits alongside Matthew 18. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, 15, in the NIV, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you, and if he listens to you, you have what? You have won your brother over. You know what it doesn't say? You've won the argument, you've won the fight, you've been proven right, you've got, you have won your brother over. Because that's what reconciliation is, it's winning brothers over, not winning arguments. The goal... Some, some people, their goal is not reconciliation, it's retribution. Their call for mediation can really be a call to further argumentation. There's no real desire to get past this and, and come together and say we, we can disagree on some details, but we can still love each other in the process. You really can't make peace if one side's goal is further war, amen? Because no matter how much you give, the world is not enough, to quote a James Bond movie. Now, some people come saying, peace, peace, but, but war is in their heart. And that's why we have the resources of other brothers in this, and that is principle four today. Godly, wise Christians, godly, wise Christians in the local church are the means for that resolution when you can't work out things between each of you. Listen to the passage again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So you should go to Christians. Or do you not know the saints, Christians, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try these lesser cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church, unbelievers in the courts? I say this to your shame. Instead of the courts, they were to take things to the saints. Now Jesus said, if another brother has wronged you in your estimation, you can't get over it, you can't get past it, you can't move on from it, then a personal private attempt is the next step, and if that's rejected, 
then you're to bring another brother in. But he doesn't specify much about who that other brother is. Now, he's writing before the church has been inaugurated, right? The church isn't inaugurated till Pentecost. He's writing about a future church. It doesn't exist yet. He hasn't gone to the cross. The Spirit hasn't come down. But he says, take another brother, all right? What brother is he probably alluding to? When you take the whole counsel of God, it seems like this would be probably an elder in the church. Why? All right. What does the term elder mean? It means someone who is spiritually mature. Number two, there's another group of people in the church. They are the overseers. Do you know what they do? They oversee. And so if there was a dispute, who would be likely the right person to oversee that? The overseer. Did you know as an elder, the spiritually mature, and an overseer are the same people in Scripture? Oh, and by the way, there'd be a third group in the New Testament that you would probably want to go to. The people that shepherd through life's problems, through the Word of God. Who's that? Those would be the, the shepherds, the pastors, the elders, the overseers. So many commentators see that what the whole counsel of God is teaching here is that it's not likely, it's not likely that Jesus was saying, why don't you turn the local church into a three-ring circus where we sit with popcorn in the peanut gallery while hateful, hurtful, unhelpful barbs are thrown back and forth between one brother and the other. Although that's what some churches think, take it to the church meeting. Hmm. Most likely, it probably means take it to the elders, to those called to the office of overseer who've been called to shepherd the church through delicate matters. But I want to tell you, when you do, the goal, the goal is the goal. And the goal is resolution that leads to reconciliation. It's not the goal for one party to be proven right or for someone to get their way. Now, some Christians historically have chosen, chosen arbitration in these situations. They seek the aid of the Christian legal society or certain parachurch ministries. And that's not necessarily prohibited in this passage, but I want you to notice what Paul doesn't say, because it's sort of telling. He doesn't say, oh, you have an interpersonal problem at Corinth, you need to call the church of Ephesus to help you deal with it. He doesn't say, go to those sturdier saints in Galatia who aren't as immature as you people in Corinth. Instead, he says, even within the messed up church of Corinth, the local church should have the resources to deal with this situation within their own congregation, probably within their elder board. So that means if you and I have a problem Verse 5, can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? If even the corrupted Corinthians were adequately resourced for this eventuality, does that mean that we should arbitrate every petty squabble between believers? Probably not. This isn't really a call that you should just flood the elder board with everybody who can't get along because they're acting like they're five. It's probably intended to give you pause, that you really would think long and hard, do I want to take this to the elder board, or can I be not five? And am I sufficiently right that when the elder board hears it, they might not go, hey, you're being five. Grow up. Paul's ultimate plea in our passage isn't to negotiate or to arbitrate. He urges us to simply be wronged and move on. How's that feel? You like that verse? I don't but it's true. I look to Jesus, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Reviled unfairly, not reviling back. 
yet there are some Christians who always want to get their way. They want to make a public spectacle of their supposed indignity. And so they twist 1 Corinthians 6 and Matthew 18 to insist in all this that they have their day in the arena. Let me tell you what, friends. If those brothers are right, then Satan will make sure that church degenerates into an endless adjudication of various altercations. If they're right, then that's what church is going to be. And that would mean that we would have very little time to make disciples. We would have very little energy to preach the gospel. We would have very little ability to reach the nations because all of our time would be spent in endless arbitration. And yet that's not what we find in Scripture, and it's not what we find in church history. We don't find churches routinely uh, squandering their resources in endless arbitration and mitigation. It's very exceptional. And so contrary to the saber-rattling of some saints, Ephesians 4.2 says this, be completely humble and gentle. That's going to diffuse a lot of situations, isn't it? Be patient. That's going to diffuse a lot of situations, isn't it? Bearing with one another in love. That's going to diffuse a lot of situations, isn't it? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. So you can't always have unity at the price of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That brings us to principle five. Our Christian testimony is more important than any individual Christian's victory. Let's say that one together in North America today. Our Christian testimony is more important than any individual Christian's victory. Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. We've reached that stage, we've already lost, and we have deeper problems. The most important thing for a Christian, according to the Word of God, is supposed to be the glory of God. Insisting in our rights in such a way that our testimony is left out is not the Christian position. It's not. The, the great reformer John Calvin uh, studied law at two French universities before he went into ministry and began to devote himself to theology. And Calvin observed from his law training that basically parties involved in lawsuits are often motivated by greed, impatience, revenge, hostility, and obstinacy. What do you think about that? I think there's nothing new under the sun. 1500s versus 21 and uh, France versus America. I'm going to give you a Calvin quote here. Uh, it, quote, indeed, whenever lawsuits occur frequently or the parties are obstinate in joining issue with each other, and they want the utmost rigors of the law. It is perfectly obvious that their minds are inflamed far too much by wrongful, greedy desires, and they are not prepared for calmness of mind and endurance of wrong according to the commandment of Christ, end quote. <laughs> this brings us to principle six. Two wrongs don't make a a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Listen to verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you mean you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. Now that's important. Paul is saying the people taking people to court are cheating and doing wrong. So they're saying, I've been wrong, so I'm going to court to fix it. And Paul says, by going to court, you're doing wrong. Now, part of this is because of the way justice worked in the ancient world. Justice in the ancient world was often not blind. The New Testament scholar, Dr. Ben Witherington III, describing the Greco-Roman world, says this, quote, from at least the time of Augustus, certain people, fathers, patrons, magistrates, and men of standing, were basically immune from prosecution for fraud by other classes of people. Children, freedmen, private citizens, and men of low rank couldn't sue their greater person and get any traction. Only if a lower status person had a powerful patron who interceded and brought the case on behalf was there any hope of help in this justice situation. The Roman system was also heavily influenced by oration. People would come because this is the city center and they'd want to hear the best speaker. Remember the Greeks and Romans, they loved oration. And so there were people that were excellent at rhetoric that weren't necessarily truthful, and people would listen, they'd be spellbound. So if you could hire a better lawyer, you would win. If only that was analogous to today. I'm sure that's not true for today at all, but he who has the most expensive lawyer wins. Uh, and then he goes on to say, the Roman judicial system was pervaded by improper influences, and this made equality before the law unattainable for many or at least virtually so, citizens were less likely to be arrested, beaten, or imprisoned than, say, a foreigner. The principal criterion of legal privilege in the eyes of the Romans was what's called dignitas, or honor derived from power and status, to the wealthy, to the well-born, to the well-connected, went the chief rewards of their legal system, end quote. So what you need to understand is to pursue a suit is not to pursue justice, it was to exact vengeance. These same folks who were crying, I've been wrong, were quite happy to inflict as many additional wrongs as necessary so that they would get what they wanted in this deal. And that's why the scripture says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. You see, if I gain from a lawsuit, but my fellow brother loses, the body of Christ is poorer for it. Friends, did you know that it's better to suffer wrong than to do wrong? That's what the Bible teaches. It's better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. I want you to consider the counsel of 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Prayerfully embrace the truth of Romans 12, 17, and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that brings us to our last and highest principle. Might be our second last. I think there's eight. Could have got the math wrong here. Apologies. My degree's in theology, not math. Uh, point seven today is this. The highest Christian response is to overlook an offense. The most Christian thing you can do is to overlook an offense. 
The Bible says this. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? How many of you have a tattoo that says that? Or a tapestry in your house? Or a memory verse that comes across your screen? How many of you ever think of this verse? How many of you have memorized this verse? Is there not a more Christian verse? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Think of Jesus. Think of this verse. Seems very much in keeping with Jesus. Why remain livid instead of being loving? Why? James 2.8 sets this straight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and if so, you are doing well. And if not, you're not doing well. Proverbs 19.11 tells us, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Christian, are you prepared to be glorious in this? Or are you only committed to vengeance in this? Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. There are times you go, God, this is totally unjust, but you're the just God. I'm going to pray to you instead of fight through this. That's a biblical response in the Old and New Testament. But beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Say that again. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, you're doing this because of Jesus, not because of them or what other people think. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The only one that matters, by the way. For to this you have been called, Christian. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He could have called down angels and zapped them all in a holy second. And he'd have been wholly right to do it. When suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin on the body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for God. Now, in 2019, our culture doesn't get this. We don't get this. The idea of it being to my glory to overlook an offense. We live for offense. Our favorite phrase is, well, I'm offended. That's our favorite phrase. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or a Christian. Or not. Our favorite phrase in America is, I'm offended by that. Do you know what happens when you're offended? Nothing happens. Grow up. You were children. You went to school and they said sticks and stones. 
break your bones, but words, they don't have to hurt me. You don't have to crawl into a safe space or, or, or get a machine gun and go to Walmart. You're offended, okay? Get over it. It's to your glory, Christian, to do what? To overlook an offense. I, I thought you'd get that. That's like right there in the passage. We'll try that again. It's to your glory to what? I'm not going to say it because then I've got to do it. Okay, work on that this week. It's to your glory to overlook an offense. Friends, New Jersey is not well known internationally for being gently gracious when provoked by someone else's intransigence. You poke the bear when you poke New Jersey, right? Oh, how the church of Jesus Christ in New Jersey could be a witness in this when our bear gets poked and Jesus comes out. Because that will blow their mind. And when they say, why aren't you giving me the gear? Well, I'm hurt, and what you did hurt. But I know someone who took everything I ever did, and he loves me, and he tells me to love you, and I'm probably not going to do it the way I should do it, but I'm going to try to do it. I love you. Please stop hitting me with the bat. It's okay to say stop hitting me with the bat. Now we get to point eight, and I think I've got my math right. Here we go. Uh, we who have experienced God's radical grace ought to be able to share that grace with others. We who have experienced God's radical grace ought to be able to share that with others. Our passage seemingly ends at verse eight regarding our courting disaster through the courts, but, but before Paul picks up in his next topic, uh, which really starts at verse 12 on sexual immorality, there's this bridge passage. There's a few verses we're going to spend more time on next week, but we need to just touch on it this week because it is still part of the connection of the context of Scripture. Before we wrap up the litigation question and we go to the next topic, there's these verses. Listen to them for a second. As certain saints were, were loading their ammo in their gospel gun to, to take down their brothers who've wronged them, Paul says this in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. All of us were on a path to self-absorption. And that would inevitably lead to our own destruction. That's what the Bible teaches. But God rescued us. If you put your faith in Jesus, God's rescued us from that way of life. He washed us. If you've been washed, why would you return to the slop so you can sling mud with other pigs? He sanctified us. That means he set us apart for holiness and righteousness. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. So why would we want to fight like the world when we could instead love and forgive like Jesus? He justified us. That means that Jesus willingly endured injustice. My sin fell on his shoulders. He willingly took personal injury. He bled and died for my salvation so that we would not be on the hook and we would not get the book and all the things that we deserve we wouldn't receive because of our own recklessness in our actions to God. 
So how is it that we, who have experienced such radical grace, can't share some of that grace Monday in New Jersey with that guy that you really wish would transfer to the Des Moines office forever? I want to leave us today with a story from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And as you contemplate getting even this week, instead of seeing this person forgiven, particularly if they're a brother, I hope it gives you pause in your cause. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the very chapter people like to go to when they want to get someone. They go to 1 Corinthians 6 and Matthew 18. They don't go to all the chapter. They go to just a couple little verses on, I went to them, and now I got somebody else that agrees with me in the church. Maybe it's my brother-in-law. He always agrees with me. And now let's go have a public flogging for Jesus. You know where they don't go in Matthew 18? Matthew 18 is on page 1046 of the Blue Pew Bible. They don't go to verse 21. Very odd. They never go to verse 21. In fact, there's more verses from verse 21 to 35 than there is on the verses they're going to quote when they want what they want. Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You know, that's a lot. I'll put up with it once, twice, three times, double that, now six strikes, you're out. Seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77. He didn't mean literally, he meant hyperbolically, that it's just, you keep forgiving if it's a genuine repentance, not if he's just holding a bat and saying, forgive me. Verse 23, now here's the story. You listening? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is how God works. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle the accounts of his servants. See, people had debts against the king. And when he began to settle the accounts, there was a servant who owed him an incredible amount of money, 10,000 talents. It's an unbelievably large amount of money. It's more money than anybody normally can accrue in their whole lifetime to possibly pay back. It was an impossible debt. And the king began to settle, and there was this guy who had sinned against the king greatly. He owed the king more than he could ever repay. And since he could not pay mercy, his master offered, excuse me, uh, therefore uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle accounts and servants. When he began to settle, the one who was brought to him was owed 10,000 talents, and since he could not repay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all he had, and payment was to be made, and the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, mercy triumphed over judgment. The master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. So here's this guy with this huge debt. He asked for mercy, and the king forgives. Now, that same servant who's just been forgiven by the gracious king of an unpayable debt has a problem with another servant. But when that same servant, the guy who'd just been lavishly forgiven, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him comparatively little, a hundred denarii, not much. And he sees that dude, and he began to choke him, and he says, pay me what you owe, pay me what you owe. And so this servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. You've heard those words before. And that dude refused. And he went and he put the other guy in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants, the others, saw this, you know what they did? They went back to the master. And all that's taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him from the jailers that he should pay all of his debt. And so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you who does not forgive your brother from his heart. Christian, if you've experienced the lavish grace of God and there's real repentance on the other side, ask for Christ to give you the strength to forgive. At the same time, if you've got somebody holding a bat saying, oh, Forgive me while I swing away. Be wise. You need to have both sides of the coin, gentle as a dove, shrewd as a serpent. Thus says who? The Lord Jesus. Now think about the Lord Jesus. He came full of grace and full of truth. And I don't know who you're dealing with this week, but I know that we live in a fallen world. And there are some folks we have to be wise even as we extend forgiveness. And there are some folks we just have to get over ourselves and extend forgiveness. And I bet the Holy Spirit knows which one is true for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look at this book that was written 2,000 years ago to a church that's totally messed up, and we see ourselves. (laughs) We see a society that would rather litigate instead of be wrong. We see a culture where we would rather have our way and be seen as right in our brother's eyes than righteous in our Lord's eyes. We see these passages and we see, wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of a group that really followed Jesus in this and walked the truth in love and dealt with things when they needed to be dealt with? Because no, you can't stand with a bat and you can't swing away and that's not okay and that's not Christian and just saying sorry isn't the same. You have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we have to be wise. You don't give the keys to the family car to someone who's reckless. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to your holy people and make them more holy this week. Those who need the tenderness of forgiveness would remember the lavishness of the debt that's been canceled and they would be able to extend lesser grace to that other person. But equally, Lord, if there are those that are in abusive patterns where someone is taking liberty and being licentious and then using scripture as a weapon, I pray that you would set my brother free my sister free because the truth sets us free and there are those who know how to use the word as a tool for careful self goals i pray lord that you'd liberate us from those as well in jesus name amen